Derek, I want to show you a movie of my childhood. Oh, okay. Why, why are you doing that I'm voice? What is this? I'm texting it to you right now. Uh, okay. All right. I'm, I'm pressing play. It is a sad tale. Oh, God. Of a young boy who liked to get messy. Are you a, a dirty boy, oink, oink? What, what's happening in this video? My father was obsessed with a show called family double dare he created <laughs> obstacles in the backyard that he forced us to do endlessly like retrieve flags from bowls of pudding and slide across slippy slides covered in gack did you have to avoid uh, temple guards and give them coins if they <laughs> caught you otherwise they drag you screaming off stage and lord knows what actually happened yes and it was all recorded on family <laughs> videotapes that we no longer actually watch because who the fuck actually does that nowadays? <laughs> well, knowing your little brother, you could probably get it somehow converted to disc form or digital. Yes, knowing Jesse, I could probably convert it to fucking eight track and laser disc. <laughs> That fucking music nerd. What's up, uh, everybody? <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by movie monster boy Aaron and me, the cowardly co-host Derek, in which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, as well as discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies and horror junkies alike. We have had a run of guests, so it's just me and you this time, Aaron. It's been a minute. Yep. Hopefully when you're hearing this world is on fire and the Batman is not a disappointment, which I don't think it is from what the early reviews are showing. But otherwise, what's new in your neck of the woods, bud? Uh, Not much. So this will obviously be a bit dated, but I took a few days off and Heather and I actually got to, for the first time, participate in F This Movies, F This Movie Fest, Fuck where yeah. they celebrated the films of 1996 so the day started off with mars attacks and then michael bay's the rock which was a fucking blast that thing you do which is always a super delightful movie the phantom with billy zane okay yeah from dust till dawn and we ended the night with independence day which was a fucking yes so yeah (laughs) it was a great time it was a great time tweeting with everybody from that group so yeah definitely um um, if you've not heard of F This Movie, they are probably Derek and I's favorite day-to-day podcast. There wouldn't be a watch if you dare without F This Movie, if we're being honest. Yeah. And watching From Dust Till Dawn was specifically a blast. That was the only capital H horror movie that was really in there. Interesting, like, how many people were reacting to From Dust Till Dawn that either had not seen the movie at all, and so had no idea where that movie was going, which is wild that 25 years later people are still like, oh, so what's this movie about? If you don't know (laughs) anything going into From Dust Till Dawn, the turn in that movie is one of the biggest turns, I think, in any movie I can think of. Horror movie, any movie, period. Because it starts in a dark and fucked up place, but it's like a very... I'm trying to not spoil anything. Oh, it's dark and fucked up. I mean, it goes from being like a crime hostage movie to being a flat-out creature feature horror movie. Yeah, but the way it, it makes that turn, like, no one sees coming. Yeah. If you don't know anything going into it. But it was interesting seeing people's reactions to, uh, let's just say, Tarantino in that movie being, like, the most despicable, awful disgusting character and you know 
know, once it gets to the turn, just everybody like having a blast with that. So that was certainly a lot of fun. Independence Day, again, just a fist pump in movie form that's one that it was fun looking at everybody's tweets and seeing how many people were like this movie fucking rocked my world when i was growing up you know i saw this opening weekend and it blew my mind and i definitely remember going to see that movie the summer that it came out and my mom brought us to see it it was like the day before school started we skipped wednesday night church went and saw it stayed up late and it kicked all the ass so yeah that's a movie that is definitely burned into my kid brain for sure and it was fun yeah. visiting that with everybody and we'll eventually probably do it because i think it's worth talking about there's enough going on in that movie that i'm sure the history behind it and everything is pretty fascinating because i've only seen Day? oh no i'm sorry i meant um <laughs> from dust till dawn from dust till dawn yes yeah, yeah. we will probably for sure do that movie but funny you bring up independence day in horror because i kind of let you take over our twitter when you did that so uh, if anyone was on on Twitter and seeing all these F This Movie Fest tagged posts. That was Aaron kind of live tweeting as he was going through the movies. But I did catch one of the ones you tweeted and I thought about it a lot because it was during Independence Day. You mentioned that scene where like the scientist guy gets taken over by the alien fucked you up as a kid. Yeah. Same here. That was like one of those weird scenes in in an otherwise badass action movie that I loved even as a kid that fucked me up too. Like if if we're talking about the nature of our show. Another weird thing that really fucked me up as a kid like we almost left the theaters because it was scaring me so much was in mars attacks anytime they'd shoot someone with their ray gun it would dissolve them until they were just, just a skeleton skeletons the idea of them being killed and turned into melting skeletons scarred me for some reason as a kid <laughs> but yes that tweet kind of brought up those two memories in, in my brain but yeah that fucking possession scene randomly in the middle of independence day is it's some kinder trauma man <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's good shit sir is this glass bulletproof no and then he <laughs> yeah that whole fucking movie was pretty great to like talk through with a crowd and it was interesting too you could tell like whenever everybody was really into it because the tweets would just drop to like nothing you know cool i guess this is kind of a recommendation already we kind of just eased right into that the only other thing i'll mention and i'll let you kind of take it over because i don't really have any recommendations prepared i've been busy i went back to the comic moonshine uh written by brian azarello that i mentioned several episodes back and caught up with the last two or three story arcs that i had not read it literally just ended a story arc and that book is pretty interesting kind of where it goes ultimately like i mentioned previously the artwork and it's fantastic it is a gangsters bootleggers distillers rednecks voodoo new york gangster cleveland all kinds of bullshit it just weaves in all of this kind of stuff with werewolves and it's pretty fucking rad so i would love to see like an actual show or movie adaptation of that it would be pretty cool but yeah as far as alt history werewolf shit goes that book has been pretty enjoyable and the last couple of story arcs were pretty good so um once again that's one that i would definitely check out again that's moonshine that's really all i wanted to bring up this episode derek what have you got yeah so just a quick reminder this is our recommendations but it looks like i'll be doing the heavy lifting this week which is fine because yeah i know you've been real busy we've been talking off recording but for those of you who are new to the podcast first off five stars on itunes or apple <laughs> second off go into our backlog but our recommendation section is a section where we discuss other movies that are different from the movie we're discussing or books or tv shows or music or video games and anything that is horror related that we've also consumed recently. 
and we recommend it to each other. Um, and hopefully your audience hears something that catches your fancy in terms of recommendations as well. And so hopefully you can find something to check out. Uh, kind of going in the same pattern I've been going with the last several episodes. I got one music and two movies again, which is, again, very unusual for me because I'm usually like the comic guy and video game guy on, on these. But uh, hey, dad life. So uh, <laughs> music and movies during nap time are like the easiest things for yeah. me to consume lately. So yeah, here we go. So I'll start off with the music recommendation. It's one that I'm surprised neither one of us has brought up on an earlier episode, to be honest with you. And I even added the title track, the most famous track from probably this artist, but definitely from this EP, an extended play. I have been digging into, for some reason, Come to Daddy, the EP by Aphex Twin. Yeah. And uh, the reason why I bring this up as a horror recommendation is, well, just listen to the Come to Daddy Poppy remix, which is the most famous one, the one that actually has a music video. And watch the fucking music video and try and tell me that isn't a horror short. Like, that <laughs> yeah. music video is terrifying. It's an old woman getting harassed by a bunch of like kids that are possessed and they all have the faces of Richard James, who is known as Aphex Twin. So like all their faces are distorted to look like his. And then it ends with this pale face monster that also kind of resembles him climbing out of a television and distortion demon face screaming into this old woman's face like I will consume your soul come to daddy. Uh, yeah, the music video is real fucking intense. And if you haven't watched it, again, just search on YouTube, Aphex Twin, Come to Daddy, and watch the music video. That alone is a goddamn horror short. You can't tell me it isn't. It's <laughs> pretty fucking creepy. The song itself is really creepy because it's super industrialized music and then heavy distortion of his voice just screaming over and over like, I will eat your soul, come to daddy, all that kind of stuff. Um, I threw it on our Spotify music playlist, so it, it's on there. If you shuffle that, it, it should pop up. The rest of the extended play uh, came out in 1997. It's a pretty hefty EP. It may as well kind of be like a, an album. The length of it is over 30 minutes long, all things considered. It's eight tracks. It actually has three versions of Come to Daddy. The Poppy Mix, which everyone knows, and then two other mixes. But the other two mixes are honestly like their own songs. Yeah, they're very different. They're all very different from each other. This whole album, imagine if you took, I don't know, Nine Inch Nails, a fucking text-to-speech computer voice, a fax machine and a blender full of blood and guts and just threw them all together and that's kind of what you get because it goes through a gambit of emotions from track to track between like straight up horror and like crazy sounding shit to like flim which is very ambient and theatrical even is the best way to describe it and there are just moments in the, in the album that it goes back to the more of the ambience that he's known for um, there's a lot of drum and bass beats kind of throughout the whole thing he deals with polyrhythms like he always does with all his other 
other work. It's good shit. Granted, it's all electronic music, so if that's not your bag, you know, completely understand. But, you know, Aphex Twin is kind of one of those masters of IDM and all that and that entire, like, music scene. But uh, it's kind of crazy because if you go back and listen to his selected Ambient Works albums, those are just very kind of chill. Yeah. Those are, like, having a good trip on acid, whereas Come to Daddy is more like, I took acid and I went to hell and I saw the face <laughs> yeah. of the devil and now I'm in my living room trying to watch a horror movie. <laughs> like, yeah. that's kind of what the EP is, but uh, it's good shit. I love it. Come to Daddy is a, uh, while it's really creepy, it's a pretty rocking song. I've been kind of in that growling distortion voice going like, come to daddy to Autumn throughout like, <laughs> the week since listening to it. I want to say my first exposure to Aphex Twin was probably the Come to Daddy music video in like high school where I watched it and I was like, what in the fuck am I seeing and hearing? And then I really actually gave Aphex Twin more of a chance in college, either from you or Jonathan, who was on uh, our past episodes of The Strangers in House. You know, either you or him were like the guys who turned me on to Aphex Twin. I've never seen him live. I don't even know if he's tours or anything. Like, I just dig his music. I don't know if you have different experiences than I do. No. Not necessarily. I mean, I, I definitely remember seeing the music video on TV, probably VH1, late one night and being like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. <laughs> but then yeah. I bought this series of DVDs from Palm Pictures when they were still a thing that was just these weird compilations of commercials, music videos, short films. Music video directors. Of these music video directors. Yeah, because you would bring us over to the house during college and we would go through these sometimes. I remember this. Yeah, they were great to just have on in the background if you were just hanging out because you could just let them roll and depending on what mood that particular director is it'll kind of set the tone of what the rest of that hangout is going to be but like there's a whole one dedicated to Spike Jones, and then there's a whole one dedicated to Michel Gondry and Mark Romanek and all kinds of other people right so Chris Cunningham that directed the Come to Daddy video he's got one and so yeah I've got that there's all kinds of weird behind the scenes shit and like making of that video and stuff like that on there as well so like, I, I really did become obsessed with those DVDs and watch them a lot during high school. And so, yeah, like, I, I've kind of been aware of Aphex Twin for a while. I have never seen anything live before. I'm not sure what that would really look like, honestly, beyond just <laughs> here's a giant light show. Definitely fun shit. Yeah, and just seeing his whole persona of Aphex Twin, specifically like that grinning face that's slightly distorted, is always interesting because I was reading somewhere that when he was doing that he did that because a lot of techno artists and producers at the time would conceal their identity I mean hell even Daft Punk did that till their career ended yeah. it just adds like this weird horror undercurrent to him that is just kind of fascinating to me because most of his music at least the music I've listened to especially his like earliest works and the ambient works seem to be like his most critically acclaimed are just so calming by comparison but then like this EP is just totally out of left field and yeah. so much more like aggressive dark and fucked up and there's still hints of that ambience to it too um now granted i haven't listened to his drugs album d-r-u-k-q-s i have no idea if that one's a little more like heavier but that's next on my list of his stuff to check out because um that's another one that most people recommend after it's selected ambient works albums you know hey maybe he'll pop back up eventually as another recommendation for me if there's some fucked up shit on there too 
Next up are two movies that I did, and they're both slashers, and they're both very, very tonally different from each other. I'll start with the more serious one, the one that I know for a fact we will do on a future episode. For some reason, I decided to watch, and it was on Tubi, I watched Alice Sweet Alice from 1976. Yes. Another slasher like Black Christmas that kind of fucking floored me Yeah. in terms of like why this movie doesn't get more acclaim to it. And again, it is a little overshadowed by Halloween. Now, don't get me wrong. I think Halloween is a better movie than Alice Sweet Alice. Alice Sweet Alice did have a couple problems. It could have probably been edited down 15 more minutes or so and made a little bit tighter, in my opinion. But it's kind of bonkers to me that this movie doesn't get brought up more because the slasher has a gimmick appearance. Yeah, They have a mask. They have a whole outfit. And this is two years prior to Michael Myers and his mask. And even Black Christmas you know the killer never had a mask at least not that we know of because i will bring this up later on in our episode when we actually discuss the movie we're talking about today but going back to my old analogy of if halloween is like the nevermind nirvana album and black christmas is dinosaur jr alice sweet alice would be like the second album of dinosaur jr be like bug or whatever that album is but uh what really floored me is how fucking serious it was the subject matter it was tackling especially in the 70s time and time again aaron we always come back to this movies from like the 70s that bring up abortion and talk about it even at fucking prophecy you know like bringing up these taboo topics in this case al sweet alice deals straight up with religion and catholicism putting that religious imagery next to crazy acts of violence including murder towards children there's also elements of child sexual abuse with the landlord trying to trap and abuse a 12 or 13 year old girl in this movie at one point there is a lot of themes of the nuclear family like basically breaking apart because the movie starts off with a husband and wife are separated one of their teenage adolescent girls is troubled the other one is brutally murdered at her own first communion in the church which is real fucked up and she gets stuffed in a fucking trunk and lit on fire during this the first communion ceremony the churchgoers discover her like burning corpse in the trunk and this was all like supposed to be set in the 1960s too in new jersey and granted i didn't spoil anything because that's the whole setup to this movie and throughout the entire movie alice who is her adolescent sister who's extremely like troubled she is the main suspect and the movie goes from there there's actually a pretty decent twist in this movie i saw that it had a lot of inspirations of alfred hitchcock i saw a lot of people comparing it saying this is like one of the earliest examples of an american version of a giallo film i would agree with that yeah yeah there's even a scene that straight up felt like it it didn't feel like a ripoff it felt like a homage to psycho Something that stood out to me is all this crazy shit, all this violence and family fighting each other and stabbings and killings and everything. There's always all this striking religious imagery, statues of Jesus staring at you or Mother Mary. Like they're always filled in all the rooms and then the scenes of these movies to the point where like the juxtaposition between the violence and the Catholic imagery really pissed off the church actually. And like, I think it originally like resulted in obscenity charges being brought against the 
director like in New Jersey by the church. I think I remember reading that he might have been excommunicated or the church was like threatening excommunication or something. Crazy shit. It was extremely controversial in Ireland, of course, because Ireland is very Catholic. I think it was banned in certain parts. I know we talked about Video Nasty and a lot that we did on an older episode, but yeah, I don't want to talk much more about the actual plot. You are making me interested to go back and watch this, though, because it's been probably since high school, since I've seen this movie. Arrow just put out a really nice Blu-ray of it, and I have yet to catch up with that. But yeah, you've got me interested to go back to because I remember liking it at the time and just never really returning to it for some reason. Yeah, and other stuff I was like looking at because I I actually haven't heard of this movie because the killer, not only are they wearing like one of those weird 1970s women cherub masks, but they're also like dressed in a yellow raincoat and anytime they're in the scenes killing people. The mask is one of those clear plastic face masks of like a grinning face with kind of weird makeup on it. Yeah, like it's... very so it's, creepy. it's just extra weird on top of somebody's face because then it could be anybody and you're not really sure who it is, right? Yeah. So, yeah, that mask is pretty indelible. Well, in, in the yellow raincoat, going back to the movie I was mentioning, like, I never heard of. Apparently, it was like a whole reference to the killer in a red raincoat in the movie Don't Look Now, which came out in yes. 1973, which I'd, I've never heard of Don't Look Now. And now I'm curious to check that out. But yeah, it was pretty brutal and pretty violent. And, you know, like Halloween, I know at the time it got all this controversy for how violent it was. Like this movie is even more violent than Halloween was. And it came out two years prior and it dealt with heavy religious themes. And again, I do think Halloween is a way more superior movie for how tight that movie is and the cinematography is better and all that. But I'm surprised again that this movie like isn't brought up in the same conversations as like The Omen or yeah. Carrie because it kind of came out around there. But uh, yeah, I would recommend Alice Sweet Alice. Along with Black Christmas, it is one of the earliest examples of like a modern slasher movie, and it's one of the more serious ones, and it predates Halloween. It's a really kind of weird out of time thing. The acting is kind of interesting too, because I think where like I felt a lot of Italian horror, some of the acting, I don't know if it was because it was a little amateurish, although Linda Miller's in this movie, and she had a fucking amazing career when I looked her up. It just felt more like that little bit bit of surrealism that's always on top of Italian horror movies was also in this movie where it just felt like something always felt a little aloof but you're not quite sure what but yeah Alice Sweet Alice check it out it was directed by Alfred Sole good shit so second slasher I watched and I think we should do this movie eventually too but we might not have a lot to talk about from an actual themes or thematic standpoint I watched 1989's Intruder it's closing time but the night crew still has work to do. Oh my God, we're gonna get in so much trouble. Because there's one last customer who isn't satisfied. No, this creep keeps calling her. He's driving us nuts. Leave me alone. He wants to slash their prices. <laughs> Who's there? He wants to cut their inventory. <laughs> You're crazy. In fact, he wants to chop. Until they all drop. I saw him kill Linda. And now, he's turning their retail store... There's gonna be one more kill in here tonight. ...into a wholesale slaughterhouse. 
fuck yes. How did you get around to that? I don't know. Again, I was just looking up underrated slashers because I've just been in that mindset lately. Yeah. I'm just kind of wanting to watch some trash. And, you know, I was very pleasantly surprised for Alice Sweet Alice for, like, its seriousness. But Intruder was exactly what I was looking for in terms of schlock that I love and had a great time watching. So Intruder from 1989 was written and directed by Scott Spiegel and has a lot of overlap with Evil Dead. Yes. And, like, Sam Raimi. The reason why is uh, Sam Raimi is one of the parts in this movie. He's actually has a pretty big role in this movie. He also, of course, dies like a chump. Purposely, his character, like, you know as soon as he pops on screen that that guy's gonna get fucking murdered. Like, he is a born victim in this movie. Bruce Campbell makes a cameo at the end. Yep. I had no idea Sam Raimi was, like, so involved. I believe Sam Raimi produced it. I think it's one of his protégés that directed it. As far as I know, that's kind of it. It's just one of these weird oddities that I, I remember watching on cable at some point growing up and just remembering, oh yeah, this is the one where like a bunch of people get stuck in a grocery store and there's a killer in a grocery <laughs> store. <laughs> yeah, I know Scott Spiegel like helped write Evil Dead 2. I know that much. Yeah. Apparently Sam Raimi was in like, I think like two earlier movies that he did. The person who actually is playing one of the other characters who winds up being like one of the more important roles in the movie, apparently he has appeared in other Sam Raimi films in bit parts. Yeah, dude, this was this was a blast. So the whole thing behind this one is it's basically is Friday the 13th in a supermarket. Yes, absolutely. All the kills are done from like a first-person perspective, just like in the original Friday the 13th. They try and go in with this big reveal of someone you wouldn't expect, although you can kind of see it coming. Like You can totally see it coming. A million yeah. miles away. And so at first, the setup was interesting enough because it was like a supermarket. There's like a group of like eight or nine employees staying over night to like reprice everything and restock everything you find out the supermarkets closing down and they're going to be out of a job because they're being bought out in like a month or so you know there's ex-lovers getting involved and like people hooking up and like random interpersonal relationships between all the employees and all that setup was great i really enjoyed that and i was liking it enough but i was kind of like okay this is sort of just standard slasher fare there was a moment where i was starting to lose my like attention a little bit but once the kills start happening this movie has some of the most creative fucking slasher yeah. kills I have seen in a movie and like did not disappoint every kill had its own gimmick depending on where the person was in the supermarket which I really appreciated there was the guy in the cold cuts department using the meat slicer and of course that's basically just Chekhov's meat slicer and it delivers in a way that I fucking loved with the person's <laughs> face let's just say I loved that the killer just for no fucking reason would spread body parts around the supermarket like put an eyeball in with the olives and like put a hand in with the lobsters and the seafood section the use of gore the use of blood honestly like all the stuff we talk about with heather wixon's book all the makeup and mayhem and all of that of the slasher movie like this is kind of a prototypical or not proto it is a typical slasher in all the best ways i actually watched the unrated director's cut that's the one that's on tubi as far as i know because uh the running time on that is 88 minutes the version i watched on tubi was like 87 and some change i'm assuming it was the director's cut with the kills that were happening because some of the kills were pretty fucking brutal i think my favorite one was either the meat slicer or the thing that's on some people's desks and you spike receipts on top of it when you're 
you're done checking a receipt or whatever. <laughs> yeah, the thing that you take your disembodied head of your uh, antagonistic doctor that you resurrected and you you know slap his head down on top of that. Yeah, yeah. and you put it. Yeah, so it was, it was nice to see that being used again in this horror movie. One of the funniest parts is at one point the slasher has the head of another victim and beats another fucking guy to unconsciousness with the severed head of one of his earlier victims. And I was laughing. I was cackling, laughing so hard when that scene was happening. Bro, this movie ruled. Like, Intruder ruled. Yeah, this movie's fucking great. (laughs) But yeah, I had a blast. It was a nice pressure valve release from all the seriousness of Alice Sweet Alice. And even in the movie we're doing this week, because the movie we're doing this week was also pretty serious. And so if you really just want to like watch a really fun, creative kills, kind of no brains type of splatter fest, Intruder is rules pretty hard. The budget was only $130,000, by the way, which is yeah. insane to me with some of the gore effects that they, they get away with in this movie. Yeah, totally. I believe Synapse put out the Blu-ray of it. I literally have it on the shelf back here. But yeah, it's a lot of fun for sure especially if you like you said just want something like real stupid and something that you can like turn your brain off with it's good shit i googled it real fast synapse films they have the blu-ray dvd combo for sale on their website and it's their director's cut yeah so um intruder rules i don't know what else there is to say about that so who knows maybe i'll have more weird slashers for you in future episodes under recommendations if i keep because the bug i still have the little bit of the bug of underrated weird slashers so we'll see what happens next but that's all i got for this week so i guess we can move on to the movie we're doing cool well yeah we are going to be discussing peeping tom from 1960 directed by michael powell this was a very controversial movie at the time of its release this and psycho both came out the same year we're tackling a lot of the same subject matter but this movie immediately went into the trash bin of critical and audience reception and really Psycho okay. went on to being like a massive mega hit so it's interesting because this movie has since come around to being a giant cult hit many people consider it to be one of the greatest british movies ever made it's interesting the way that it kind of tackles such lurid subject matter because the director was mostly known for doing kind of stuffy british melodrama stuff before this uh so we'll get to talk about that in just a second but here is an idea of what you're getting into this episode look out Look out! Look out! Take care. You are being watched. We repeat, take care, for you are now alone with a killer. We warn you, don't let him see the fear in your eyes. For this is what he seeks, and this is why he kills. Where are you? Where are you? Look out for Carl Byrne as the peeping Tom. Fear him. But pity him also. <laughs> it's no good. Watch out for Moira Shearer as the lovely stand-in who innocently dances into danger. Imagine someone coming towards you who wants to kill you, regardless of consequences. A madman? Yes. Wait! Look! Anna Massey is the girl who falls victim to the charms of the lonely stranger upstairs. Switch it off, Mark! Mark, switch it off! Maxine Audley, as the blind woman who senses the danger that threatens her and her daughter. 
but he's helpless. Don't be frightened. I'm not frightened. So put that camera away! There is no future for anyone who tries to befriend him. He invades the privacy of innocent people till the piercing eyes of his camera meet the terrified eyes of his victims. And with a compulsion akin to madness, he shoots the final fearful scene. If we're going to go on that analogy, going back to my fun music analogy, Halloween is Nirvana's Nevermind. Black Christmas, Alice Sweet Alice is Dinosaur Jr.'s first two albums. I would say Peeping Tom and Psycho are the fucking stooges. Like, without this, without these two movies, like none of that shit would happen, right? Pretty much, <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that both came out the same year. Yeah. Psycho came out after this movie. It did? Okay, that's, yes. that is very interesting. Psycho came out after this, and something that Hitchcock was kind of wise to do, he saw the negative reception that this movie had, and he was like, you know what, fuck it, I'm not gonna do a press screening. And so, he just released the movie into theaters, and that was that. Not only did this movie instantly become this reviled artifact, and it got pulled after only five days in theaters, but it also completely tanked Michael Powell's career. He could not wow. work for years afterward in the UK. So, you know, it's it's very interesting because, like I said, they're both tackling a lot of the same stuff, but in different ways. The killers are very similar in a lot of ways. The themes are very similar in a lot of ways. But as many similarities as the movies have, there's really that many more things where they're very dissimilar. Yeah, for instance, the killer in this is, I would say, a lot less suave and comfortable even around women than the killer in Psycho. And this movie actually explores how he became who he became, where Psycho very much leaves it a lot more up to interpretation between his relationship with his dead mother. Uh, Spoiler alerts for Psycho and, you know, fucking old as shit movie. But the other thing I thought was interesting, did part of the backlash and this may be falling a little more into obscurity? Were there ever any accusations that he ripped off Hitchcock, even though Psycho came out? after this no i was reading that pal actually worked under hitchcock or like worked under various positions on hitchcock movies and there was even like an unproduced hitchcock movie that kind of dealt with something similar to peeping tom but not really the two remained friends apparently through their careers so it's it's just crazy to me that like hitchcock got all this acclaim for psycho and pal just seemed like he ate shit for this this is a good jumping in point to not only like discussion of the themes of this movie, but the background. So there's a lot of Michael Powell in this movie, just like there's a lot of Hitchcock in his movies, right? There's just a lot of both of their neuroses and anxieties and fetishes in both of the movies. This movie is kind of notorious for also having kind of a rough production. Michael Powell was not the nicest dude to have to work with, let's just say. He could be very demanding and egotistical and short, especially with his actors. As we discussed on our Psycho episode, both he and Hitchcock were very much the type of directors that saw actors as just tools in their hands and not necessarily as people. And so that can create some friction on set. Dude, especially one, it's a story about women being like terrorized to this extent, to the point where like there's a fetishization of fear of capturing the last moment of their lives and a lot of voyeurism. Yes. So I guess to give you some background, Michael Powell came up 
in the British film industry, doing various jobs and eventually directing short films. He found a creative partner in Emmerich Pressburger. So I'm sure you have heard the phrase, oh, a Powell and Pressburger movie, a British Powell and Pressburger production, right? They were kind of these two guys putting out the best British cinema of all time, like a lot of the really great stuff, but very kind of stuffy British melodramas and historical things, right? They did the 49th Parallel, The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, A Canterbury Tale, A Matter of Life and Death, which that is a movie we watched uh, when I was in film school, Black Narcissus, which I really like, and The Red Shoes, which I fucking adore. That's one of my favorite old movies of all time. Absolutely insanely gorgeous movie. So he was known for doing these types of movies, and this was very much a strange departure for him. That's interesting to see, because remind me, where in Hitchcock's career did Psycho fall? Was that kind of on the earlier half? Because Peeping Tom was on the later half of Pals, right? Yes, this was on the later half of Pals, but no, with Hitchcock, Psycho was kind of in that two-thirds period. It was deep in his career before he did Psycho. So it was kind of the same point for both of them. Peeping Tom was written by Leo Marx, who was a cryptographer during World War II for the Special Operations Executive. Okay. And he created coded poems for agents to use in the field, right? So his fascination with subtext, let's just say, is obvious right there is a lot going on under the surface of this movie that is not explicitly written out for instance at the beginning after we see that mark has murdered a prostitute that's how the film opens and he is reviewing the footage that he shot of himself killing the prostitute yeah talk about a like way to open the credits basically yeah tell me he's not fucking masturbating absolutely absolutely right he stands up out of his chair that he is sitting in watching this film and then you see him collapse and sit back down in his chair as if he is now spent right so like there is a lot of shit kind of right under the surface that leo's kind of working into this movie again if we're talking coded messages and subtext there's a lot in this one certainly and that that kind of goes hand in hand with serial killers really weren't that big of a thing in 1960 i don't even know if the term serial killer had been co-opted yet or not i don't remember what year it was yeah i don't think the term serial killer was around yet but there were a handful of serial killers yeah. at this point i mean you had hh they holmes. just hadn't been classified yet correct yeah i mean you had hh holmes and albert fish and ed gein but this is before like the real pop culture news yeah. media psycho frenzy of manson and bundy and Gacy and all of the stuff in the 70s and 80s, right? I don't know if they even had classification of sexual gratification with murder. No, no. So much of this stuff is uncodified at this point. Yeah, whereas Peeping Tom really is ahead of its time in capturing that. When we watch it under a modern lens, yes, it feels very more like thinly veiled because it's never explicitly stated or shown that he was masturbating for instance, right? But like, that's clearly what's supposed to be happening in the yeah. introduction of this movie take that whole like little bit of the beginning of the movie he 
He follows a prostitute up, films her as he's murdering her, brings it back home, watches it, probably masturbating. You could fit that into any serial killer in the last several decades who murdered women and prostitutes, and it would make sense. And this was coming out in 1960. And what really was creepy about this movie, because I was kind of surprised that, and this, I guess, goes with how ahead of its time and timeless this movie is, it was fucking unnerving to watch through the lens of his own camera, him creeping up on a woman, and the last thing you see is her screaming. Because it's forcing you to be complicit. It's forcing yes. you to participate, absolutely. Which yeah. that is a lot of the like meta commentary with the movie is audiences for any movie are essentially passive voyeurs. You're peeping toms. You're <laughs> constantly watching in on scenes that you shouldn't be able to, right? That's just kind of the nature of cinema and how movies work. Like you as an audience member are always complicit, even if you are not directly involved, right? So yeah, putting you directly in the killer's POV is very interesting. And this is a very early instance of seeing through the killer's eyes in a movie. And it's funny you bring that up because we're, we're just focusing right now on that aspect of this movie, that aspect of the horror that's portraying is the plot device itself, the camera being the voyeuristic nature. And, you know, there are other themes of violence towards women, child abuse, sadomasochism and all of that fetish stuff. Staying on this point that you kind of tapped something that was interesting to me. And this is right off the fucking Wikipedia. I try not to like just wiki dump on our show, but the Wikipedia has some interesting things under the themes for Peeping Tom. And one of the things that really stuck out to me and I'm just going to quote it right off the thing is that Martin Scorsese stated that this film along with another film called Eight and a Half contains <laughs> everything you can do. This is the stuff that does kind of crack me up doing this show with you because you're not as film nerd as I am. So no, like, I'm not. It's like this other film called Eight and a Half. You mean Fellini's Eight and a Half, which is one of the most important like foreign art movies of all time. <laughs> I don't know what Eight and a Half movie is. I'm not an art movie nerd. Get off me. But anyway, his quote is saying, is I've always felt Peeping Tom and Eight and a Half say everything that can be said about filmmaking, about the process of dealing with film, the objectivity and subjectivity of it, and the confusion between the two. Eight and a Half captures the glamour and enjoyment of filmmaking, while Peeping Tom shows the aggression of it, how the camera violates. From studying them, you can discover everything about people who make films, at least people who express themselves through film. And that kind of really sums up a lot of what the movie is doing, is it is all about the aggressive nature of, as a human being, being and being a filmmaker like what you can capture in aggression and all the dark-sided behavior as on the flip side of what eight and a half shows but yeah if i'm gonna do the whole like horror newbies thing like i'm not gonna not recommend this movie obviously it's a must watch right it's a must watch movie for anyone who is even vaguely like into films because yes it is from 1960 yes there is a little bit of datedness to like sometimes it feels like you're watching more of a like a play happening rather than a movie yeah i mean if you're at all interested in like film history this is an important movie to watch if you are a slasher nerd or a horror nerd in general and want to see where modern horror really came from or at least the modern slasher genre like alongside psycho peeping tom is the other like must watch movie if you've seen psycho love psycho but you've never seen peeping tom must watch movie it is very uncomfortable the subject matter it does but like again the shots of him actually murdering people and you especially in the beginning when you're like through the viewpoint of the camera itself is 
creepy as fuck and may even be a little triggering for some people say this movie like was more modern uh he would have definitely like raped and murdered like the girls and had it all on camera right yeah i mean if this was made today it would be considerably more explicit just because yeah get away with more now so this is kind of a good exploration of the themes without really having to be as explicit yeah but if you're watching it through the lens of 1960 and you understand like the context the context of 1960 and the type of context that was everyday acceptable back yeah, then like this movie was yeah insane. this movie would have been a fucking nightmare this would be like going to see nightmare on elm street not knowing someone could kill you in your dreams so while we're on the topic of scorsese just to kind of keep going with that this is one of his favorite movies right and this is one of those movies that was a favorite of a lot of that original film school brat generation peeping tom is a frightening experience Powell dared what no one else had dared before him, to show us how close movie making could come to madness, how it could eat you up. He was telling an extremely uncomfortable truth, something that nobody really wanted to know, on on top of which he was doing it in a spectacular lurid Eastman color, images that almost recall the covers of porno magazines. And he paid the price. I mean, Peeping Tom put an end to his career in England. When I saw Peeping Tom, my first reaction was, could this have been the same man who made the red shoes, made this picture? But then, of course, I realized that there was a very strong link between the two pictures, just as there's a, a sort of vital continuity running throughout all of Michael's pictures with and without Mike Emmerich Pressburger. Michael was always showing us how necessary art is and how far it can drive you in your passions. And he was also showing that it could consume you if you weren't careful. In a sense, a Peeping Tom was his last word on the matter. It's also one of his greatest films. Scorsese and Coppola specifically were kind of obsessed with this movie and tried for years to collaborate with Powell on something. Um, Eventually, Powell became the senior director in residence at Coppola's Zoetrope Studios in the 80s. Also ended up marrying Scorsese's longtime editor, Thelma Schoonmaker. So he was pretty in with Powell for a while, but it was this interesting fascination that all of those people had because... You know, they knew, oh God, this movie was super controversial and it was taken out of theaters only five days into its run. And so it was this kind of weird object that everybody heard about and heard about the controversy, but then nobody was able to see it for years. Scorsese didn't see it until 1970, like a whole decade later, and he eventually got his hands on an uncut 35mm print in the late 70s and partnered with like a small film distributor to put it back out in 1979. So the movie getting a release 20 years later, and interesting to see how immediate reappraisal began, with modern critics kind of going back and saying like, yeah, what the fuck was wrong with people back then? They were just too much on their high horse and you know everybody was too moralistic back then this is ridiculous that everybody like hated this movie considering that there were all these other movies that did similar things yeah did it being british whereas psycho was an american film did that have anything to do with the weird because like was britain more i think it had to do certainly with the type of critics seeing it yeah was were they more puritanical than um, america was not more puritanical i mean america's yeah i feel like america's always been a little more puritanical in that regard right the UK is kind of closer to the European sensibility. And Heather and I were talking about this. This movie goes a lot more, matter of fact, with the sex side of it. But it then does. you don't see hardly 
any violence. Most of the murders in this movie cut away before you really see anything happen. And Psycho is kind of the opposite, where a lot of the sex is very, very under the surface, and the violence is kind of forefront in that movie. So I don't think it's necessarily that the Brits were more puritanical as much as just, it's not proper, it's not buttoned down, it's not classy, it's obscene, right? It's that kind of snootiness. Well, and it's kind of funny, because then it feels like this movie is making fun, or not making fun, but like examining the very thing then that these critics were using to like lambast it at first because this movie felt like it was more examining Britain at the time than anything else because Britain is kind of understated in this movie but it still feels like a a character in, in the background yeah and because of that I found one of the thing many things I thought about after watching this was this movie commentating on uh British fears and anxieties of 1960s late 1950s I'm sure none of the shit we're saying is original because I'm this movie has probably been talked to death but it just felt like with the whole idea of sex and again the destruction of family at least uh, between a father and a son I don't know it just felt like this was capitalizing on post-World War II fears that uh, arose from this time period that was certainly a lot of it you know and this is not unique to like a British sensibility but it also kind of shows a lot of the disregard that society and law enforcement has for sex workers and for a lot of the women that he is targeting, right? They're very much just kind of an afterthought and like, oh, well, another one, throw it on the pile, whatever. I mean, we see, too, just the way that sexuality is handled. And and I think, again, if we're talking about a lot of the director bleeding into this movie, Powell kind of had a lot of the same opinions of the people that are in the movie, interestingly enough. It's not like he was trying to, like, make this breakthrough progress aggressive message around everybody is important and we shouldn't just consider sex workers to be like less than dead you know when they are murdered and targeted they were people and had dreams and hopes and ambitions just like anybody else no that's not what this movie's trying to do at all right And that's clearly like what his viewpoint seems to be based on some stories of how he treated some people on the set of this movie but you know i think what's interesting is again the movie was heavily edited they toned down the nudity they toned down the violence and the kills but despite that the movie still went out unrated and it was still completely reviled the amount of satire and kind of the layers and the commentary even on just things like film going and film production even that stuff was like completely looked past at the time by critics so crazy who really only focused on the more like ridiculous elements of the movie right the more you know extreme elements like i mentioned earlier it's interesting like where there are similarities to psycho and where in some ways the movie's a very inverse of Psycho. So like Norman and Mark are both process killers. They are all about the actual act of killing. That is how they get off. That is what they are going for. They could care less about the body. And in both cases, they both completely dispose of the body, don't want to have anything to do with the body. They are not in it for that product, right? They both kind of keep trophies. Mark, especially in this one, records every single one of his kills with his camera and goes back and rewatches those things to relive that moment. It's like an early version of Creep. Yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting trophy, and it's an interesting process for him, too, because he, he has to kill them in a specific way, and they have to be, like, reacting in a specific 
specific way in order for him to get the exact trophy he wants. Yeah, it's all very, very, very particular, and he's very, like, technical and nitpicky and obsessive about it, which, you know, if we're talking about creatives and we're talking about movie directors, it's a lot of that mindset kind of bleeding into this character, right? It's a lot of commentary (laughs) on that type of person, right? You know, both Norman and Mark are incredibly sexually repressed both have lots of parent and abuse issues both are kind of driven by compulsion and they're both voyeurs both kind of require this degree of separation from their evil acts i mean you know norman obviously slips into the character and dress of his mother in order to kill people and acts like his mother yeah he yeah. has to like literally be consumed by this other identity in order to kill and mark in this movie has to have the separation of the camera you know he lives through his camera everything that he observes in life he's generally indifferent toward when he's looking at it through his camera though he is just constantly fascinated and awestruck and fucking drooling looking through his camera there is that layer of separation there in order for him to like commit his evil act yeah the big difference though between the two for me outside of their personas as people as people are very different yes Bates can actually still function and hold conversations and has a degree of charm to him whereas Mark in this movie is very very antisocial, very like nervous and anxious, even almost to the point of every conversation he has is pretty uncomfortable or like awkward as fuck until like either sees fear or like you said, he gets behind the camera or both real quick. Since you brought up the whole idea of weird sexual repressions between the two. And like, you know, you mentioned with Mark at the beginning of this movie, pretty much masturbating to his own murder. This is surely not an original idea of mine, right? The idea that he lifts up the front prong of the camera stand. Oh, it's totally phallic. It's totally phallic. Yeah, it's totally, totally like phallic. getting an erection, basically. It's all about penetration. It's totally and penetrating phallic. a woman. Yes, yeah, completely. Yeah, all of that. It's like, I guess they just focused on, oh, that's not proper so much that they like were avoiding all of the brilliant subtext of that. That's baffling to me because uh, when you first think about it, the idea of that murder weapon, while it's really fucking creepy and creative, is really just like, oh, like that seems like a bad murder weapon. But then when you think about it in the context of like his own sexual repressions, and how he becomes when he sees a woman in fear in the front of his camera, like, yeah. makes all the sense in the world. He becomes erect. Yeah, the whole thing is highly impractical, but that's yeah. not the point that yeah. the movie's trying to get. And yeah, to your point, you know, Mark is definitely a little more of a recluse. You know, I think both he and Bates are both recluse to one degree or another. Like, Mark is making every excuse he can to leave his day-to-day life and work and get back to his private life and Norman Bates is kind of making up every excuse to stay in his private life and not go yeah. out into the public necessarily. I mean, they're both recluses kind of in their own way, but you're right in that Mark is much more awkward. Then you bring up a good point that he's out and about in the city working in movies around actresses and crew all day. Yeah. It's interesting how the two function because Bates just waits for people to come to him. Otherwise, he is just hanging out in the fucking weird, creepy motel right off the side of the road. Yeah, he's very much that charming spider in that way where, like you said, he's waiting for people to get stuck in his web, whereas Mark is out and about actively looking for victims. He's seeking out victims. He 
is constantly recording people on the street. You could probably bet that the prostitute that he kills at the beginning is probably not the dozenth person that he has killed, right? Yeah. But he still functions within society. He doesn't necessarily want to, but he still does. And Norman Bates clearly, like, does not participate in society. Well, and another clear difference between the two is, and granted, I'm sure Norman mainly targets women, but actually in Psycho, he kills a man. Yes, Mother kills whoever gets in the way. In the way, yeah, whereas Mark, it seems like he only is targeting women. Yes. It seems like only sex workers, although he, like, later on in this movie, he does kill, like, an actress, which is kind of crazy. I don't necessarily get the idea that he's only targeting sex workers, but that sex workers are just more vulnerable. So that's yeah. where he goes. Yeah. Well, and it, it makes me think he's been doing this for years and years because yeah. like all the shit from his dad. So like, I, it just made me wonder, like, how did he get away with this for so long? Well, it's also clear too by the end that he wants to get caught. He oh, is ready yeah. for it to be done. Yeah. He is ready for all of this to be over. He is tired of living this double life and constantly trying to cover up this secret. And you get the impression that Norman, being that he has this in air quotes, split personality thing going on. There was never any intention of, I just want this to be done. It was all just like, oh, I can't believe I finally got caught. Whoops, but never like, oh, thank God it's over. Yeah. To the point where when he gets caught, mother takes over too. Yes. Norman, that is. Whereas in one of the more interesting like little elements of this movie at the very end, fuck it, we're talking spoilers all left and right. So like kind of going hand in hand with what you were saying, like he is wanting out, whether that's subconscious or very much purposeful. The final like death where he kills himself, he has set up his own room and says, I've been waiting for this moment. I've been like, I have set yeah. this up exactly the way I imagined it would happen. He's got all the cameras rigged up to take the yeah. Yeah. of him at all the, the moment of his own death yeah yeah like all the cameras and lights are going off as he's running towards the blade and then like that final i'm actually afraid before he like yeah. stabs himself at first i was thinking he was just using this as an excuse to lie to the police or have a camera around like at all times even in like police interrogations but another thing too that's uh very fascinating is he constantly is saying i'm i'm working on a documentary yeah. And I think in his weird brain, this is exactly what it is. The whole thing, even though it's one giant snuff film, is like all a documentary to him of his life and why things turned out this way. And it almost seems like, you know, this is a weird fuck you to my own dad. And but in a way that like an abused child will like lash out where they sure. obviously like never got the closure. The dad is now dead. It feels like uh, I am going to like posthumously ruin my father's reputation and his yeah. work. Look at what he turned me into. Yeah. And I joked about this with you off air, Aaron, but I've got to bring it up. The whole fucking like deal with his dad studying fear and like the the moment of the reaction of fear scarecrow he is like dr crane <laughs> yeah, like, that's some scarecrow like, shit there's a lot of arguments here to make that like mark is a batman villain but like his dad feels exactly like scarecrow yes fear in the child i must document when i unleash a spider on his bed in the middle of the night like what the fuck yeah and this is a very surface level but i mean we're talking about parents that's another surface level difference between mark and norman bates is 
they both have a lot of parent trauma, but they each have it from opposite parents, right? So Mark's trauma is all rooted in his father. His mother's death seems to certainly have had an impact on him. His father remarrying very quickly seems to have had a negative impact on him. But it's primarily the abuse wrought on him by his father that seems to be where the trauma is rooted. And another, again, the director is just all in his own movie. The dad in the video that we see, the flashback video, is played by Michael Powell, and the young version of Mark is played by his son, Columba. Wow. The dead mother is played by Columba's mother, Frankie Reedy, and lots of people found this to be real distasteful and borderline child abuse. You know, granted, Columba since said since he's an adult, yeah, no, that's ridiculous. Nothing was weird about any of that, whatever. But again, talk about like, I'm going to basically put myself in this movie, no filters, you know, very much in that weird way. And not just that, but one of the cameras in Mark's collection that we see is one of Powell's first cameras that he won in a competition. And so it's just, it's really weird. Really? That Yeah, like wow. it's just really okay. weird how much Powell puts himself in this movie about a serial killer, right? Did Powell murder some prostitutes in the United Kingdom? Did he target sex workers at all during yeah. his rise to fame? Like, what the fuck? Well, again, he wasn't the best dude in the world, and I'll get into that in a minute, but the star of the movie, Carl Heinz Bohm, he also channeled his fraught relationship with his own father, who was a domineering conductor, right? Carl Bohm as well as his upbringing in the Nazi regime. So, like, he was also oh, channeling a lot of trauma in playing this character. So, you know, both characters have a lot of parental-based generational trauma that they're clearly trying to figure out and clearly trying to work with, but in the most unhealthy ways. And if anything, like, this movie's a great case for, hey, uh try therapy <laughs> right yeah i know right during all those shots of when he was a boy and his dad terrorizing him and like trying to register fear and all this um there was also another random shot of him as a boy basically peeping tom on a couple yeah. that's making out in the park and his dad is filming him peeping tom on the people while also filming the people yeah. making out so clearly like encouraging the behavior absolutely yeah well and then later on as an adult when he's on a date with uh helen they pass a couple that's like making out in an alley and he stops and like watches and even tries to reach in his pocket for his camera that he left behind. So obviously like those kind of weird abusive wires got crossed sexually as a boy with the voyeuristic peeping Tom of you know watching people basically like engage sexually with each other without their consent. And granted it's all done like you were saying more 1960s surface level the people are just only like kissing they're not doing anything else but still like the subtext is all there. Yeah. That's the other aspect to his dad's films and weird abuses growing up that I found fascinating. All that footage too that he shows Helen at the beginning of oh yeah here's my child videos <laughs> what a date <laughs> yeah exactly like what a great way to introduce yourself to somebody for the first time like hey look at this weird shit i was into all those scenes and i know you probably haven't seen this movie but it's all very reminiscent of the stuff in manhunter where he's keeping his home video collection 
he's forcing other people to watch it. Is that, do you see? Do you yes. see? Yeah, that's yeah, what that's right? from, right? Yeah, It's very, very <laughs> similar to that whole thing from Red Dragon and Manhunter where, you know, he's forcing people to watch this footage and they're just like, what am I fucking looking at? Like, what is this? What are you trying to show me? It's like, but don't you understand? <laughs> yeah, one weird aside is uh, there's a random South Park episode I remember where like someone abducts Cartman or somebody and it's basically a spoof of that character yeah he's always showing him like and here's pictures and video of me yet with my family on a vacation of disneyland do you see do you yeah. see yet? yeah that scene has been parodied a ton since it came yeah. out you're right that's kind of granted that it's a more like him trying to sort of hit on someone but he absolutely has no idea how to do it properly because yeah. he mostly just murders women like yeah so let's get into maybe the sticky side of this whole movie hold on that sticky's not a great way to say that let's say the more unfortunate and controversial and difficult to talk about side of this movie yeah that that's a that's a better way so anyway this was one of the first major british films to depict female nudity and one of the many examples where actresses have been taken advantage of by directors and producers etc so just like in the states you know britain had their code of conduct for movies and what you can and can't show and they kind of had their own ratings board and things like that that would overview movies beforehand and make sure that anything objectionable is taken out i don't really know super in depth how that body functioned or how the rules really worked i know more about the fucking 70s where all the video nasty stuff started so video nasty didn't become a thing until later on no that was much later yeah. on and that was way more about when we say video nasties like videotapes once it was very accessible and you could take them home. But, you know, obviously movies have been, like, banned in England for always. So this movie features not only, like, a sex worker who is murdered, but one of Mark's side jobs is he takes nudie cutie photographs for the place that he works at as his other side gig it's like a photography shop slash news bin i don't know what the fuck you would call a place like that it's like a magazine stand but they sell every kind of magazine including like nudie magazines yeah it's it's like a full-blown shop not really a stand but it did kind of crack me up that yeah they just have porn like yeah all over the outside doors and windows of this place so that anybody walking down the street could just see tits like hanging out right but but you see a moment where an older gentleman is going into the shop and is like, yeah, I need a copy of the Times. <clears throat> um, do you happen to have any, like, nude photography? And he calls them, like, views, which that kind of was like, what? <laughs> They're basically selling yeah. smut under the counter. He, like, haggles with the guy about the photos and then puts them in a little brown paper bag that says educational books. But Mark is essentially churning out these photographs for him across the street at this studio and there are these two models one of whom is named millie played by pamela green the other actress in another moment of his weird scopophilia and obsession the other actress has makeup done up to make her look like she has a hair lip and he's fascinated by that this seeming imperfection on this otherwise you know perfect specimen of a woman right the, the thing i took from that scene and i did read this under more themes and analysis of this movie but 
so it's not again not an original thought but my reaction to that scene wasn't necessarily like the deformity or, or any of that that intrigued him about her it was like she's so used to people and the public at large having a fear and a disgust yeah at her yeah at her and it's almost like she's impervious but like there's still always that fear of her as of she's gonna get a type of reaction from everyone around sure. her because yeah, she yeah. usually does and so like i saw someone describe it as a naked fear of hers that's always just on her face and in that moment mark can sense it yeah and he could give half a shit about what she looks like it's more about the fear that's on display yeah with her so ultimately where i'm going with this is the main girl that we meet in the scene millie played by Pamela Green, was a real-life glamour nude model. Interesting. And she co-managed a lad mag, I guess is what they called them in the UK, called Camera, and that's Camera with a K. So they are doing auditions, they audition her at her studio, and she strips in front of everybody, right? And Powell kind of remarks how comfortable she seems to be being nude around so many people, specifically so many guys and she's like yeah well whatever I'm a naturist and I feel more comfortable this way so it doesn't bother me and so they're like cool you're hired they even use set pieces and costumes from her studio for this movie so a lot of the stuff that you see in that scene that's all like stuff of hers from their magazine and she was very comfortable working in the realm of photography but not necessarily like being on a film set so it was kind of a whole different ball game once she was there And from there, things just kind of got real rough. So the costume designer built in this pink lining to the lingerie that she was going to wear during one scene. And Powell demanded that that lining be removed and was like, no, we need to see her body underneath this, you know, get rid of the lining, do it right now. We don't have time to waste. And so Pamela Green basically just had to stand there naked on set while the costumer removed the lining from the lingerie. And even the camera op was like, yo, this is maybe a little bit too explicit. This is a little too revealing. I don't know that we're going to be able to get away with this and Powell was just like nah keep filming whatever Powell also insisted that Green strip for her nude scene like make a show of it in front of the crew and tons of other onlookers who were just there unaffiliated with the production and even Powell's two young sons who were just kind of there like sitting underneath the camera hanging out what the fuck Green was like yo this is fucked up no I'm not doing this I'm not making a big deal out of this scene that setup is how fucking mark's dad made mark into what he is right yeah, with the two right? kids being there yeah. again so much of powell himself in this movie so when green refused powell kind of pushed back saying like well you're a stripper right so why is this such a big deal and she's like no i'm not a stripper i don't fucking perform for audiences on a stage in front of this giant crowd of rando people that you've gathered to make a big show out of this I'm a model. I pose for my partner. I get naked for pay. I specifically do photographs. I am not cool with just all these random people here on set. Clear all these fucking people out except for the crew. Powell kind of reluctantly was like, all right, cool. Get all these other people off, whatever. His two kids fucking like stayed put though. They all 
kind of hung out weird. the entire time, which yeah, that's, that's fucked super up. Super fucked up and weird. Yeah. And at the end of this nude scene, she remained on the bed so that the set photographer could come and take some stills. So that's kind of the other weird thing is the marketing department for this movie was not doing the best job figuring out how to like put this out there for people. And so they just took a lot of photos of her specifically in like, you know, lingerie and scanty clothes and stuff like that as, oh cool, I guess if we can't intrigue people with the concept of this movie, we'll just sex up the marketing. Wow. So anyway, the set photographer was coming to take stills of her and she kind of felt a presence at the end of the bed and looked up and this random dude is just there taking photos of her. She kind of freaks out and it turns out this guy was just some wannabe journalist who like stuck onto the set after he heard rumors of the first major British movie with nudity was filming here. So he was like, yeah, cool. I'm going to go take some photos. And they had to throw him out of the set. Wow. Again, going back to Powell does not necessarily see his actors as actual people, but just tools. He used these four massive arc lights while shooting green and used them very close to her. Lights are hot. Lights on set are very hot. I mean, any light bulb, if you put your hand on it, guess what? Light bulb's hot. Arc lights for a fucking studio set are very hot. You can feel those forever away. Well, and it's funny because in a later scene, like when he's doing the whole thing with that actress, yeah, and he's like putting the lights on, as he's turning lights on and like spotlights and moving them towards her, you could almost feel like the heat from those lights even as they move into place. The scene with the mother who is blind, even she can sense, I can yeah. feel the light on me. Yeah, those lights are fucking hot. He's shooting so close to her that she developed red burns on her body. Wow. And when she showed up to set the next day, her eyes were nearly swollen shut. And Powell was just like, whatever, cool makeup person, just make sure she's ready for the scene in five minutes. Yeah. Dude, the lack of presence of mind from Pal in basically making a movie about a guy who films his own snuff films and his own murders and snuff films. Yeah. And like, you know, may or may not masturbate to them later. Like the lack of self-awareness irony and self-awareness is incredible. Yeah. Also, too, just that's not how you treat people let alone that's oh. not how you treat actors that's not how you treat workers that are making this production that's just not how you treat people right he's weirdly petty and vindictive egotistical and just everything that i've ever read about this movie is he was very much an ass to work with again just weird how much of this movie is him coming out like imagine if fucking harvey weinstein directed a movie and so much of it was just oh yeah cool i'm a producer like imagine if harvey Weinstein was like yeah you know what movie is fucking great audition <laughs> I totally <laughs> like this movie audition that makes sense right but I mean an another good example of this type of thing I mean that still happens a lot just now just recently studios are pushing for and actors are pushing for intimacy coordinators to be on set whenever there are nudity scenes and sex scenes and things like that just to make sure that there's nothing sketchy happening because what tends to happen way too often is oh well you know we're, we're already at this point you know your shirt's already off you're already in lingerie why not just go ahead you know do the scene topless let's just do a take topless right are you okay with that well everybody's waiting we just need to go so go ahead and just get topless let's just try it this way i'm the director i'm telling you this is how i want it done do this right now like a lot of that pushiness that happens in the moment where like nudity was not ever discussed nudity was not ever like brought up in the contracts and now you're in the moment in front of all these crew people for Forcing me, pushing me to do this, you know? A lot of yeah. that stuff 
happens, unfortunately, way too often. A lot of, again, sex scenes not being handled in terms of the cast and crew involved, not being handled in a more private way. You know, it's one thing if, okay, cool, we see the sex scene in the movie, but it's different when it's actually the actors and actresses being naked, you know, in front of 30, 40 people. Like, there's just a level of comfortability that needs to be discussed thoroughly beforehand. Yeah, consent. The consent part of it needs to be discussed thoroughly beforehand and so much of the time people are just pressured into things that they're not comfortable with in the moment by people who are definitely abusing their power well like mark's treatment of at least the sex worker in the beginning and millie later on this movie is there also like even a degree of pal being like oh because you like take off your clothes for money like you're lesser than like i can treat you like this That's what i'm kind of saying yeah. i have a hunch just based on everything that we've seen and heard he probably didn't think so highly of these women. well and i'm sure he was a giant pain in the ass to everyone and anyone who didn't listen to him but like yeah this but sounds like unusually too, cruel yeah. yeah this sounds unusually cruel yeah so this movie is certainly not without its controversy for for good reasons, right? There's an important conversation that needs to be had regarding this layer of the movie. Well, it's so fascinating that the weird, fucked up nature of the production and Pal himself... That that wasn't the controversy. Well, not only that it wasn't the controversy, but that so much is the same shit happening in the movie with Mark. Yeah. It's so insane to me that it, it overlaps that much, but like, yes, yeah, so it also is kind of insane to me that that wasn't more of the controversy. Now, granted, it was the, you know, fucking, what, 1950? 50s when this was being made late yeah. 1950s so but i mean and you could say like oh well that was just the culture at the time that's just how things were but that's fucked up right yeah that's real it, fucked it's up. still fucked up behavior and it's fucked up culture built around your film set that's something interesting i think i mentioned this you know when i recommended it a while back but in a slightly different way edgar wright's last night in soho kind of touches on that idea a little bit that thomas and mckenzie is just so in love with the 60s and obsessed with the 60s and only listens to like musicians and bands from the 60s and loves the fashion and is just obsessed with the whole Soho area and Piccadilly Circus and all this shit from the 60s right and that's just her dream to live this whole time period and oh god everything was so glamorous back then I just wish I could have been alive during that period and the movie's very much about her learning like Mm, it wasn't necessarily the best period for a lot of people to be living in and a lot of people dealt with a lot of fucked up shit back then because that's just how things were and it was a different time and people got away with more and more fucked up behavior was just accepted and passed on right so the movie is very much commenting on cool so yeah i know you loved the 60s but the 60s weren't the most perfect time you know especially not for someone like you in a place like this you know around these people so it's kind of the same thing in that regard but that's certainly something that again it's it's wild that this movie is 60 plus years old and we are just now getting to a point in the industry where like things are really starting to boil over and a lot of this culture is finally starting to be addressed and there's more safety being put in place 
finally. It's not like any of this was new when this movie came out, and now here we are 60 plus years later, just now trying to turn things back around. I wouldn't make the argument this movie could have been made without any of that, too. Yeah, for sure. Because <laughs> a lot of what you were saying didn't really lend itself to any, like, ultimate result that made the movie any better or worse. You know, maybe, like, the idea of the Mark character himself being a little more explored, but, like, otherwise, I feel like this movie still could have been made without the extra layers of cruelty that Pal brought to it. And especially knowing that most of Pamela Green's nudity is not in this movie. You know, so much of it completely got cut out and is considered to be totally lost. There might eventually be some footage of this movie that just randomly appears at some point in time, but a lot of the more explicit sex and violence stuff that got cut out of this movie is considered to just be gone. So not only, like, did she have to deal with all of this bullshit period, but then it was for a completely pointless reason that contributed literally nothing to the movie and ended up getting cut, which is especially frustrating. Yeah. I wonder, too, if the other character, uh, the character in the beginning, the sex worker he murders, played by an actress named Brenda Bruce. I wonder if there was more to that scene, too. Do you know if... I'm not sure. That one almost leads up to, like, sexual act, like, it turns into the murder, and that's where, like, you get the most striking image of this movie of her, like, face turning into pure fear and actually i think even like the theatrical poster has her sitting on a bed with that yeah. fear looking face i dug around and tried to find some different versions of this movie to see if i could find some deleted scenes or just see if i could find anything else about what was kind of cut changed altered etc it doesn't really seem like there are a ton of options out there like the version that is on the criterion dvd that is long out of print the version that is on on archive.org the version that is on Tubi TV for free right now like they are all the same exact version of this movie that was my next question because I watched the Tubi version yeah so this unrated version of the movie is seemingly kind of the only version of the movie that exists at least from what I could find so I don't know exactly what all was cut out other than just the death scenes were trimmed to be less explicit and the sex was trimmed to be less explicit yeah. And as it stands right now, there's really only like one moment where you see any actual nudity happening and it cuts away pretty quick, you know, so there was definitely more there at some point. But again, to my point a second ago, it's just especially frustrating knowing that Pamela Green was put through hell and then for what, right? Most of her stuff ended up getting trimmed out of the movie. Well, and it's interesting, like you mentioned, they edited down maybe some of the death scenes because for a movie that has a killer that literally like films women and then basically impales them with a knife at the end of one of his tripod legs you never see any blood or any kind of gore even to the point where when yeah. he kills himself it's just more implied that like he it stabbed just, himself in the neck but like away, yeah yeah whereas in psycho you see granted it's in black and white but you see the blood going down the drain and everything yeah so there is even some gore in psycho kind of to like shift gears a little bit unless you had anything else to say on all this the two things i always that also stood out to me are both helen and mrs steve Mrs. Stevens, it's interesting, and I, I think it's pretty obvious why this decision was made. But, like, Mrs. Stevens being blind, and she's the only one that can kind of see through Mark's bullshit yeah. is pretty fascinating. That it's the blind woman who knows that Mark, she's not quite sure how he's full of it, what's really yeah. wrong with him, because but she, she can't can quite actually up. see what's on the screen, but she can feel what he's feeling and feeling the fear.
fear and everything in him. I think that was a neat, interesting touch that felt a little ahead of its time. Even if now, if they did that, it'd feel a little more tropey. And then Anna Massey is Helen uh, in this movie. Helen was ethereal in a very earthly way is the best way I could like describe it. She felt very pure and innocent and it had to end this way, right? It had to end that she would be Mark's downfall, but yeah. he needed this for his own closure, but also to stop the murders from happening. And Helen, he can't even bring himself to murder Helen in the end. He'd rather choose his own death over her. And I don't think the movie is necessarily trying to make you sympathize too much with Mark because at the end of the day, he's still a murderer. Yeah. But like, I think if it were, Helen is the closest thing that we come to it, you know, seeing the relationship blossom and how he's finally able to leave his camera behind when they go out on a date and become more open with her. But as soon as she gives him a kiss, he transfers that kiss directly to his camera as soon as he has it back in his hands. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Even as much as we were making fun of it earlier, like, here, come to my apartment building on our first date and I'll show you these films my father took of me. <laughs> like, yeah. He's never done that before with anyone else. So I feel like her performance in this movie should stand out just as much as the Mark Lewis character. But, you know, I think most, most of the analysis goes to Mark. But, like, kind of what are your thoughts about Helen and what she stands for thematically in this movie? I mean, Helen is interesting. And obviously, like, she does have that slight manic pixie dream girl kind of quality for him but like you said in a very down-to-earth grounded kind of way the fact that she's also writing a children's book about a magic camera is another one of those seemingly inspired by him kinds of things that he is also obsessed with and he wants to know where is this going what does this camera see tell me all about this because he's also kind of looking for anything that can kind of help him break through some of of his own neuroses and escape from this dungeon that he's built for himself in his own mind and blah 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 despite them going on a date and there being like weird tension with them i never really feel like there is anything sexual going on with them like there's more sexual shit happening between him and the mother in terms of tension than there is between him and helen you know so it's this weird detached kind of thing where almost to a weird point it's like he's trying to save her from becoming like him he wants to free her from her own abusive parent because you know we do see her mother constantly fucking drinking right and being critical and demeaning and you kind of get the idea that maybe she's keeping her daughter like kind of locked up you know so on one hand mark is like okay i'm gonna liberate you from your abusive parent but also i don't want you to become a weird voyeuristic scopophiliac like me you know you're going down this path with your weird kids book about a magic camera and blah 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 but it's kind of one of those like where it, it to me feels like he's trying to keep her from going down the same path but not that there is anything sexual between them i guess there's almost mm, i don't know if child likes the right word but you know innocent compassion companionship love like falling in love in the more pure way of describing it but you're right and there's even more like sexual tension with him and the actress that he has that whole big scene with but yeah there's even more tension between him and the mother and like it's weird because during that scene when the mother kind of confronts him in the attic it almost feels like her and him even hooking up in a weird way feels more appropriate than him and helen yeah does it ever hint at how old he is because helen just turned 21 she's barely an adult not really 
really. I don't really have a handle on how old he is. I mean, I would say, you know, maybe mid-30s. I don't know. Yeah. But you do get a sense that she is certainly a good bit younger than he is. And yeah. so it's more of a, like, look kid kind of relationship, I guess. I don't know. It's really interesting, Ray, because I did feel that weird thought of if this led to, like, some weird passionate hookup with the mom instead of a murder, <laughs> like, that would yeah. make more sense in my mind than, like, what's going on with him and Helen. Whereas, like, I think him and Helen have, you know, this little weird loving companionship blossoming. Anything sex-related feels like it would happen with, you know, any of his other victims through this movie. Yeah, totally. Speaking of, I guess let's talk about the cast real quick. So, Mark is played by Carl Heinz Bohm. And I'll be honest, I have never fucking really seen this guy in anything else besides Fassbender's Fox and His Friends. Apparently he was in the Sissy series, which was these movies about Elizabeth of Austria, where he plays Kaiser Franz Josef. But he has been in German and Austrian TV and movies. And like I said, outside of that one Fassbender movie, I've never seen him in anything else. They originally wanted Lawrence Harvey to play this character, and that could have been interesting. This same exact year, he did the Alamo in Butterfield 8, which is the movie that Elizabeth Taylor won an Oscar for. Uh, and then later, he would go on to be in The Manchurian Candidate. He was also considered for the role, and they passed, or scheduling shit didn't work out. I'm not sure. Like you mentioned, Anna Massey plays Helen Stevens. This was one of her very early roles, and then she went on to be in Bunny Lake is Missing, Hitchcock's Frenzy, The Vault of Horror, Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, which I have brought up on this show a couple of times. There's a lot of people yeah, weirdly enough. that have been in that show on and off. Haunted, and most recently she was in The Machinist with Christian Bale. Wow, so she was working up to that point, huh? Yeah. Shout out to Moira Shearer, who played Vivian, the dancer, actress, stand-in. She is the star of The Red Shoes, which again is pretty fucking transcendent. Joan Plowright and Julie Andrews were also considered for this role, and ultimately they passed and went with Moira Shearer, who they had worked with previously. Which, which, despite what happens to her character in this scene, the lead-up to it is kind of delightful with her dancing around and everything. Like, she puts yeah. in quite a performance, but then, yeah, something bad happens to her. <laughs> she yeah. gets stuffed in a, in a crate. Yep, stuffed in a crate after being stabbed. And that entire scene of, oh God, oh God, you know, what is about to happen? Are they going to find this crate there's so much of that kind of tension in this movie that is really enjoyable where it's that constant oh god are they going to discover things are they going to find him out the scene where he's spying on the police and pens and pencils fall out of his pocket and you're just like oh shit all that stuff is really fucking good in this last person to mention too we already mentioned her pamela green plays millie last thing i'll mention since we already kind of got into her and this is a complete side tangent just for you and me <laughs> she was in Freddie Francis's Legend of the Werewolf from 1975, which that movie has a fucking rad as hell poster. First of all, I know I'm looking at the poster right now. It's pretty fucking cool. <laughs> Second of all, and this is mostly for your edification, Freddie Francis was a hammer horror director, right? He did a ton of those movies, but he was also David Lynch's cinematographer for The Elephant Man, Dune, and Straight Story. He was also the uncredited cinematographer on Return to Oz. And then looping back around to fucking Scorsese again, 
he shot Scorsese's Cape Fear. So, oh, okay. Yeah, Freddie Francis, interesting guy, done a lot of cool shit. Speaking of Freddie Francis, Maxine Audley is Mr. Stevens in the movie. She was in The Vikings with Kirk Douglas and Tony Curtis. She was in Freddie Francis's The Brain, which was another Hammer horror movie. She was in The Agony and the Ecstasy, directed by Carol Reed with Charlton Heston. Uh, and then she was in Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, which is another in the Hammer horror cycle. So she was also kind of here and there in the horror realm as well couple last things to note real quick. Very unusual and manic jazz piano score by Brian Easdale, which is performed by Gordon Watson. Interesting score. It definitely kind of makes the tone a little wonky, I think. Imagine score swapping this with Bernard Herrmann's score for Psycho and how different and how much more intense this movie would potentially be if it didn't have the like... Just that constant kind of weird goofiness to it. It kind of gives it a comedic edge that's maybe, you know, not intended, right? No, not really there or earned, I would say. (laughs) Yeah. And then, of course, too, this was one of Roger Ebert's favorite movies. This was on his list of greatest movies ever or whatever, which is very weird for a guy who spent most of his career shitting on horror that he loved this movie. I would say for my part, since I didn't mention this earlier, I became aware of this movie thanks to Bravo's 100 Scariest Movie Moments from 2004, which was kind of this weird miniseries show that they aired that's literally yeah. what it sounds like. It's just, hey. I remember. I remember watching Number 76. This. Yeah. yeah, here's this one weird movie you've never heard of. And it's just talking heads from the horror movie industry coming on and being like, man, I remember when I saw the thing and that fucking like head split off and the tentacles. Wow, it was scary. Scary shit I've ever seen. It's just that for like five episodes, right? Quick aside, uh, the bit I caught as a teenager when I watched it, there was one guy who was talking about like Dracula or like a scene from the original Dracula. And he's like, yeah, what I remember watching, people think that's an old movie and it's a black and white, not really scary. But man, I remember when I watched that as a kid, it scared the shit out of me. It's the point where anytime my parents would ask me to go take the trash out, had to go around the house to the dark alley to put her like trash in her trash can i'd be like talking out loud and making deals with dracula not to kill me tonight that'll be like good and <laughs> eat me all my vegetables or some shit i was just that that weird memory has like stuck out in my head one of the main things i remember is just fucking d snyder from twisted sister being like i never understood why chucky was fucking scary it's dull step on it <laughs> yeah I mean, he's kind of right. Yeah. But yeah, like I first kind of became aware of this movie thanks to that program and originally watched this on TCM Underground sometime between 2005 and six. It was kind of right around that time of me being in high school as a senior and being a freshman in college. I can't remember like when, but honestly, this was a treat revisiting this movie with you because I have not seen this movie since then. Like I mentioned, this was on DVD. DVD by Criterion Collection, but it has been long out of print. There is no Blu-ray. There is nothing. We just both watched it on Tubi TV for free. Two things. A, do you remember what scene specifically 100 Scariest Moments from this movie? Which scene was it? And B, are now like the DVDs of this movie from like Criterion on the secondary market higher now that they're out of print and hasn't been re-released? So the scene that they talked about in 100 Scariest Movie Moments, I think was just the scene with Hell 
Ellen at the end where you kind of finally get the reveal of what is that fucking light that gets shined in people's faces while they're being stabbed, murdered, and recorded, and you realize, oh, it's a mirror that he is using so that people can literally watch their own fucking faces and their own reactions to their own deaths. Yeah, we didn't even talk about that part. That was kind of actually a creepy fucking reveal. Yeah, totally. So, for sure, is one of those kind of weird fucked up things, but that's the moment that they chose is this is what we're going to focus on. That's a good moment because, like, you can tell even the way that mirror is, like, tilted and stuff, it almost distorts the face of the person, too, to, like, look yeah. unnatural. But, yeah, that's, I'm glad I asked because, like, we totally didn't even bring that part up. There are international versions of this movie that, of course, are, like, different regions, just kind of skimming eBay, I guess, as a baseline. It looks like there are some Korean DVDs that are on here. There's some Australian DVDs that are on here, but literally the first Criterion Collection DVD that I came across was $43. So, ironically enough, that's only $2.90 more than what Criterion Collection's original MSRP was for this fucking DVD. Wow. Because their movies are notoriously expensive, but $42.90 for, like, an out-of-print DVD of this movie is honestly not that terrible. I have seen way lesser movies go for way more. All said none, it looks like there's a bunch on here. 53, 60, 75. There's a bunch on here kind of in that price range. But this is one that, unless the rights have been scooped by somebody else, it makes total sense for Criterion to reissue this and get a Blu-ray of it put out sometime soon. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, is there anything else you can say about this movie? I feel like a lot of stuff we've talked about, you know, probably has been talked to death a hundred times before us because this is such an important part of cinema history, especially for horror. Sure, but to the point we keep making, why is this movie not talked about more? Yeah. We're doing our part by, you know, fucking talking about this movie and probably a bunch of listeners haven't fucking seen this before so it's available for free it has our stamp of approval like check this out it's an important movie and that's a good point because like even other horror or movie podcasts in general i've listened to like anytime they bring up either psycho or halloween they always do like brief history of slashers where they came from and they always talk about peeping tom but they always talk about it in passing as like one of the yeah. stepping stones to like a halloween so it's weird to me that i don't actually see more Granted, you know, nowadays people now know that this is regarded as a classic horror film and a predecessor to slashers but like it still doesn't feel like it's analyzed in quite the same way as psycho even now yeah which is kind of insane to me because granted i think psycho should be analyzed as much as i mean shit we did a really specialized episode on one of our earlier episodes go check it out on psycho with two writers who write about hitchcock like they they wrote a big book about hitchcock and joined us on that that episode so go check out that episode even we did it but like we took our time with this movie because it is such important part of horror history now that i've watched it like this movie has just as much on its mind as psycho does yeah and sure. uh f also a weird fucking bad shit history i didn't know about until you told me uh michael powell seems like a bit of a monster yeah not to speak ill of the <laughs> dead but you yeah know. for sure but yeah I, mean, I think this is one that like i said is it's worth the discussion it's worth bringing back up to people's attention if you are interested at all in british cinema and just cinema history history of horror cinema 
I mean, this is a must-watch for sure. Again, it's available for free. It's on Tubi. Go fucking watch it. Just even Google Peeping Tom 1960 and look at the images, like the first image of just the theatrical poster. Yeah, God, I didn't even go off the fucking deep end and talking about that. The fucking lighting in this movie is amazing. The lighting in this movie is fucking incredible. The cinematography in this movie is great. I could go on forever about how fucking gorgeous this movie visually is. You know, again, The Red Shoes, one of the most gorgeous things I've ever seen in my life. And this is the same team behind that so yeah as far as the look and feel of things giallo movies certainly pull a lot from the lighting in this movie and how it's put together huge huge influence stylistically on so much horror for sure yeah and i mean we didn't even really touch too too much it definitely is in a lot of themes we talked about like we didn't even talk about like the idea of the male gaze even with this movie and like the whole voyeuristic nature yeah i mean the movie entirely is about the male gaze yeah so i mean i think that kind of comes with the territory for sure yeah the whole scopophilia aspect of it is right there in your face some of the scariest imagery like we've covered on this show from a 1960 fucking movie yeah for sure all right well i guess that's gonna be it for this week's episode Once again, we are Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, your movie monster boy, Aaron, and my cowardly co-host, Derek, in which we discuss the fears, phobias, and copophilia, scopophilia, (laughs) necrophilia. Snuff films? (laughs) Snuff films, yes. So yeah, you can check us out on social media at Watch If You Dare on Facebook and Twitter. As always, we are available on pretty much every podcatcher imaginable, specifically follow us and please rate and review us on apple Podcasts. that is the one that typically gets the most attention um so we would appreciate any love that you have there uh once again as always thank you to jesse mansfield little brother aka party gator for providing the music bumps at the beginning and the ends of every episode you can check out more of his music at party gator on Bandcamp, as well as possums big clown and any of the other acts that he has spun off from those pages so definitely check his music out throw him a couple bucks get some good tunes well you know speaking of music just check out our spotify music playlist it's linked at the top of our twitter page and you can also find it on our podbean website like i mentioned earlier i'd actually just added come to daddy by Aphex twin Aaron and i tweak that on and off from time to time uh every so often and it's just filled with a bunch of spooky music that's either inspired by horror films specifically or uh just as kind of creepy in general so yeah that is some good shit there and a wide variety of genres but yeah you know thanks again aaron for showing me peeping tong which is basically just a movie origin story of scarecrow from batman speaking of which i've been wondering what would frighten me to death set the mood aaron imagine someone coming towards you who wants to kill you regardless of the consequences a sally yes But she knows it, and you don't. Oh my god.